Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides a opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hey, welcome to the Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb. And this is a podcast where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, I highly recommend subscribing to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you're going to receive every new episode straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content episodes are for informational entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's about to launch that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you're accredited or not accredited. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio and invest in private funds. If you're a fund manager, the Aventure app also provides everything you need in order to make startup investments including extensive research materials, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures so you can properly diversify your portfolio. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point for industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in this industry are so excited about this launch, they are preparing to list their first fund in the beginning of next year. So if you want to be the first to know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. Our guest today is David Friedberg, founder of The Production Board and Bestie on the All In Podcast. The Production Board is a holding company that builds and invests in businesses that transform global systems of production and distribution across agriculture, life sciences, energy, and manufacturing. On the consumer-facing side, some of his investments and or companies that he's built are Supergut, the Every Company, Canna, and Soylent. The All In Podcast is one of the top podcasts in the world. I try to listen to every new episode, and I highly recommend it. In this conversation with David, I try to focus on the consumer side of the production board's business and how David thinks about brand building in the future. You'll also hear how he founded his previous company, The Climate Corporation, and the origin story of the production board, as well as his investment philosophy. And at the end, we talk a little bit about the All In Podcast. Without further ado, here's David. Dave, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So, you were an astrophysicist major in college. You were an investment banker, software engineer at Google. 
what initially sparked your interest in agriculture te- uh, technology and its effects on food insecurity? Uh, well, I never really had much of an interest in agriculture technology. I uh, kind of fumbled into it. My, uh, I started this company um, after I left Google in 2006, and I uh, started a company called Weatherbill, which got renamed the Climate Corporation. And we were simulating the weather and then using those weather simulations you could go to a website and uh, buy insurance against weather events. So if you're a ski resort and it doesn't ski enough or you're for a golf course and it rains or a car wash and it, it's raining and people don't take their car wash in, any business that's affected by the weather could kind of just buy insurance. And we would in real time figure out the probability of that weather happening and, and give them a price for the insurance. Um, and we kind of sold to all these different industries. And eventually I went to like every trade show you could imagine. I've like, we had deals with Priceline. I sold to ski resorts, golf course owners, associations. I mean, all sorts of stuff. And eventually um, found agriculture to kind of be the best market fit for what we were doing and decided to focus the whole company on agriculture. And in order to make the product work better, we started to acquire all these different data sets around not just the weather, but also what did the farmers do? What was the yield? What's different seed technology do for the farm? How much water different types of soil can hold? All this sort of stuff. And so we built all these kind of, you know, more sophisticated models that related all this data together. So that's how I kind of got to know about agriculture and learn a little bit about it. So it was never really like a focus. And then, you know, I I guess my company got bought by Monsanto, which is like the world's biggest seed company. And a lot of people call it kind of, you know, the Death Star. It's evil, uh, the evil empire or whatever you want to call it. Um, And so, yeah, broadly, I got exposed to a lot of different technologies in agriculture and you know, like recently, the advent of genomics, our understanding of biology as software um, has really kind of, I think, opened a bunch of interesting doors for me and a lot of the work kind of that we do today. So what what inspired you to eventually sell the Climate Corporation? And how did you, what was kind of that bridge where you thought and kind of iterated on to eventually founding um, the production board? What was what was that that process like? I sold the uh, Climate Corp because Monsanto paid a billion dollars for it. Uh, so that was a good good outcome for everyone. Yeah, look, I mean, I was there for a couple of years. I worked on the executive team at Monsanto. So I worked across our different kind of business units and um, pretty interesting business. I was making some personal investments. I, I was a seed investor in Soylent. Um, in a, uh, I seed invested a company called Clara Foods, which is now called the Every Company that makes um, egg proteins. Uh, without chickens. So you can kind of replace eggs are at like $200 billion market. And most eggs are used as an ingredient in food. And so if you can make the egg um, without the chicken uh, for a lower price, you can kind of displace that market. You know, I uh, bought a company that was the largest producer of quinoa in North America, where the idea being we could use quinoa as an alternative to rice and wheat, make it more sustainable, higher nutritional value, et cetera. So I was broadly interested in like how we could kind of invest in food um, in a way to not just make things uh, um, kind of more sustainable, but also make them more available and give consumers access to better products that could actually win in the marketplace. Um, I started a quinoa restaurant called Itza, which was fully automated. And so the idea was make food that's cheaper, faster, and tastier for consumers. But by using automation and software, we could kind of actually make the business work better than a traditional restaurant. And we were serving like, uh, I think at peak about 800 customers per hour out of a 1200 square foot restaurant, uh, fully personalized iPad and mobile ordering. And this was in 2015. 
So it was like a super high throughput restaurant, worked really well. So my general interest was like, you know, sustainability uh, and nutrition, and you use technology to make those products um, work better in the marketplace. I'm not a huge believer or a huge fan of businesses that depend on kind of greenwashing and charging a premium to people, uh, you know, to make themselves feel better about the decisions that they're making. I think that there's that becomes kind of a luxury goods market. It's a very small segment of the market. 95% of the world's people um, do not have uh, very much money. Uh, they're coming up the economic ladder and they're going to eat more meat and they're going to eat what tastes good and they're going to eat whatever they can afford. Um, and so, you know, that's the, in order to change sustainability and in order to change nutrition and the food supply, you have to focus on that segment of the market, which means making things that are cheaper and tastier and have all the kind of environmental and health benefits that you're trying to achieve. And that requires technology. So that, that's why I started the production board was to make those investments. I did it in partnership initially with Alphabet. Um, you know, Larry Page and I were talking about some of this stuff and he was interested in, in supporting it. And then we raised a bunch more money from other investors. And so now we kind of start companies and invest in companies, um, you know, kind of broadly across this uh, this landscape. Well, how how does specifically like the production board works? I know that you incubate your own companies. You also invest in companies. How do you find, how do you go from, you know, I guess, you know, just just like any entrepreneur thinking about the problem, like what what problem has to excite you in order for you to start a, uh, a company versus maybe invest in a company that's that's currently out there? Yeah, so I'm I'm not generally like um, oriented around like having an open door uh, policy for like curing ideas, right? This isn't it's not like Shark Tank. Um, we try and take a much more kind of thesis oriented approach to investing, where um, I, I tell people we connect the dots between science and engineering, markets and people. And what I mean by that is we really um, spend time separately in each of those three camps. So we spend time trying to find and get to know really great people. Um, we spend time in the markets that we operate in, uh, life sciences, pharmaceuticals, human health, uh, food, agriculture, uh, consumer. Uh, and then we spend time um, with scientists and tracking research papers and identifying emerging trends in engineering. And then our job is to think about not just, you know, uh, where is the market headed or what are people working on or where is, what does the science tell you is going to happen next, but it's about synthesizing those three sets together to imagine what's possible. And that allows you to form a thesis about the future, which is, look, if we took, um, I'll give you an example in consumer, um, increasingly, Media in consumer is getting very fragmented, right? There's a long tail of content now that makes up the bulk of consumption. And 20 years ago, um, most of the media that we consumed was made by a few publishing houses or production companies. And so this long tail of, of, of production and this long tail of consumption, you see in a lot of consumer markets. So that's kind of a trend of what's going on in the market. And then in technology, we see AI and generative AI coming to, coming to bear. When you see AI and generative AI coming to bear, you start to say, well, if the trend line is increasing fragmentation, increasing everyone wants to find their own content to watch, um, you could see AI creating much more personalized content experience. And then you think, hey, maybe um, uh, film production, maybe movie production, maybe video game production, rather than being central and that everyone consumes the same product over and over again, maybe it's personalized and made on the fly 
by the consumer. So maybe the consumer gets to see kind of a personalized movie or read a personalized book where the AI can write the book for them. Or the video game is more personalized. And so we all have our own video game experience rather than all going through the same kind of narrative epic tale on Valhalla or something. And so it becomes like a very um, astute, uh, you know, that, that becomes a thesis. And then from that thesis, we try and find teams that could execute against that and could realize that vision. And then we make investments or start companies. Um, and so that's kind of our orientation on, on, on how we kind of do thesis first investing. Is there a certain split where you have, you know, starting companies where it comes to, you know, 100% ownership for production board versus ones that you actually invest in? I think going forward, we're kind of tracking towards probably 10% foundry, as we call it, 90% investing. And the reason is um, a lot of other people have similar views of the world or develop a similar thesis, and there can all there can be a great team already working on something. So when we come across that great team that's executing well against like a thesis that we're tracking, we say, hey, we'd love to partner. Let's let's talk about an opportunity working together and and, and so on. Um, and then when there isn't, or people aren't kind of seeing what we're seeing or aren't agreeing with what we're saying might happen or what we think should happen. Then, like in the case of Canna, our, our kind of beverage printing company, we'll start the company. And we'll start out typically by doing a prototype or proof of concept, making sure it works, it's real, we can build it. And then, you know, building a product and, and finding a, a market and, um, and, and scaling it and so on. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the way we think about it. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Canna sounds like an awesome, um, really looking forward to those hitting the market, um, with it kind of 3d printing. Also, I think with, with that trend of, uh, of personalization when it comes to beverages, um, in the consumer's hands, um, which I think is really, really cool that you're, that you're working on. Um, I know that you, as you mentioned, you mentioned that, you know, you, obviously you are looking at great teams. You're investing the majority of the time as moving forward in great teams. What, makes a great te- uh, team to you. I know that you mentioned before um, on previous podcasts that you that uh, entrepreneur has to have bias to action, grit, and narrative. But how do you, when you're having conversations with entrepreneurs, how do you kind of identify those traits that that that, that, that this team or, or, or this one entrepreneur has kind of the, those traits? Yeah, I mean, for me, that's how I index the entrepreneur is like, um, like I'd want, like certainly there's the basics of, you know, are they, smart does this does this business have huge market potential can it become really big um and then really you know where are you at on the the value creation chain which is you know number one can you build a product uh number two do people want your product number three you know can you make a positive gross profit selling your product and number four do you have a good return when you invest capital to sell your product meaning you market money you spend money on marketing do you get a positive return on that is your ltv to cac good and number four, five is as your business gets bigger, does your LTV to CAC get better or worse? If it's getting better, then you've got a great business. If it's getting worse, then you know you've got a business that's going to hit an asymptote in value. And then finally, is like, can it become a platform? So I always try and assess like huge market. What's your sustainable competitive advantage? And then where are you at on that value creation curve? Then I want to assess like the team and the talent. Um, and I think that the, the three biggest predictors of success in entrepreneurship in my experience, is grit, narrative, bias to action, as you pointed out. Each one of those can be indexed into infinity, okay? And what I mean by that, like, think about the term grit. That means how much are you willing to persist and persevere uh, to keep the business alive and to make sure that it ultimately succeeds? If you had no money and you got no salary and your team got no salary, 
would you still be able to persist and build the business and build the product and service customers? Um, that's like the one kind of infinite extreme. The world is ending and you're still building the business. You have no money. You're still building the business. You're still pushing. You don't give up. Um, and then you'll find on the other end of the extreme, uh, a lot of people who have historically been very successful in their lives and in their careers maybe don't have a lot of grit. And the reason is they have not faced trials. They've only faced it, faced things that they could definitely do. And so, you know, let's say you take a kindergarten level test over and over again, you're going to keep getting an A and you're going to feel really good about yourself. When you challenge yourself to do something you've never done before, or maybe that the world has never done before, you have a much higher probability of not getting an A, of getting a B or an F, and then you face failure. And most people that have historically been successful, when they face failure, they don't like the feeling of failure and they want to go back to being successful. So they go back to doing the easier, sure stuff, the known knowns versus facing the unknown. And I think that's a really key kind of um, way to think about grit, which is how much has someone persisted in the face of failure and how much have they embraced failure as a method for learning and a method for uh, iterating and a method for kind of finding truth and discovering a new path. Uh, I think that's something you want to look for in terms of an individual self-selection in the past. The second thing, because someone who's always self-selected into the easier path or the sure path or the you know repeatedly successful path, is less likely to, 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 to have the grit and perseverance needed. As soon as they hit a bump in the road, they'll go to the board and be like, I don't think I'm the right CEO. I think we should find someone else. I'm going to go do something else. Da, 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 da. So that's something I always want to look for. The second is, um, and then obviously the other end of the extreme is the extreme athlete, right? Someone who has played a lot of sports, failed a lot, you know, does ultra marathons, likes to challenge themselves, like to do things that they've never done before. And despite having multiple failures, keeps trying and finds a way out. Um, okay, so so the second one on kind of um, bias to action, I always tell people the extreme infinity on bias to action is the movie Groundhog Day. Like Bill Murray lives a million days to figure out the perfect way to live that day, you know, and then he ends up with Andy McDowell at the end just by being a good guy. Um, I think that that's kind of what, what bias to action represents, which is how quickly can you synthesize information and make a change in your behavior or a change in the trajectory of your business? Most people don't realize, but when you haven't built a business from the ground up, but 99% of your assumptions are wrong going into it. So the real mechanism for success in a startup is to figure out what the right thing is. And there's a million right things. And so you have to iterate very quickly before you run out of money to figure out what the one right thing that makes sense for you is. Um, and that's really hard for a lot of people because they want to kind of keep reverting either to their original assumption and try and prove it and prove it and pr prove it. And, um, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, if it's not changing things is, is a mistake. As soon as you get insight, like, you know, when I, when I started my company back in, um, we launched in January of 07, I sold to like 20 industries in the first year. And, you know, by the third year we focused on agriculture and like the iterative, and we kept changing the product and changing the product and changing the product to make sure that we figured out how to make it repeatedly sellable. Uh, and I think the same is true for consumer products in every sense of the word, like hardware, software, uh, CPG, whatever it is. Um, so much of it is about iteration to success, not making the one perfect product and then launching it and thinking the world's going to buy it. I, I Like when I first launched my product, we launched on, on January 2nd or January 1st, 2007. We were up for like three days building the product, getting it working. And we, we got this article written about us in TechCrunch at the end of 2006. And we were like, oh, my God, the world's waiting for our product. Everyone's so ready for this thing. 70% of the world's businesses are going to buy it. 
we stay up all night, we crush it, we launch it. It's like we we turn on the website, we're like waiting. We're like, where's the sales? Like, what's up? Like, we made the perfect product or we figured this out. Like, let's get this thing go. Like, we're, what's going on? And it really took that kind of iterative exercise to get us to the point that three years later we were really focused and scaling our business. And then like that year we did like 35 million in sales and then like 70 million in sales. And so, you know, the business really kind of took off once we iterated to success. Um, okay. So, so then the final is narrative. Like think about Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. They could tell you something. Elon, uh, Steve Jobs got on stage and showed everyone a Macintosh that didn't actually speak and he got it to speak. Uh, you know, Elon Musk has told people this is what this company is going to do, and then it doesn't work. And then he's still able to get people to give him more money to do it again. And he's done that repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again, right? Fully self-driving. I mean, you could go through the list of things. When's this, uh, the Cybertruck coming out or, or whatever it's called? I mean, every promise he makes, uh, people kind of um, are willing to bet on that promise, even though he's repeatedly failed to deliver on the promise. And that's because he has this incredible power of narrative. And so no matter um, who you are with respect to your business or the product you're making, if you have an incredible ability to tell people a story and get them to believe in something, you have a much higher likelihood of success because you are going to, number one, attract the best team to work on the problem. You paint a picture of the future and you say, you guys can make this future possible. Let's go do it. Number two, you can attract capital because investors will just keep giving you money. If you've ever seen Adam Newman speak, you will understand how and why that guy raised billions of dollars. He's an incredible storyteller. Um, and number three is you'll attract customers. Look at Elon. He puts out a picture of a truck and people spend billions to or hundreds of millions to, to pre-order the truck. Um, I think that that is such an important predictor of success. If someone cannot, they don't have a, a command um, of storytelling. They don't have this ability to drive narrative, to tell the, this compelling story. They won't attract the right team. They won't be able to attract capital and they won't be able to get customers. Uh, and, and if they're all the way on the other side of the index, they'll become the richest guy in the world or, or, or sorry, or the richest gal in the world. Sorry. Yeah. A lot of what you focus on when it comes to investing and, um, and also, um, starting companies too, um, is, is like hard goods, you know, hardware type companies, right? Um, since of course you're focused on agriculture, food, food and security, these are, you know, not just kind of software businesses. How do you think about capital supply that are going towards these areas? Because when you think about venture capital, you think about, um, investors that only invest in, you know, software or very, very heavily focused on software. Do you think that, that there's going to be a change coming into how VC is looking at hardware products? Or do you think that there already is, um, a decent, pretty robust uh, supply of capital that's already pulling into these areas. It's a little bit of a misnomer in Silicon Valley um, media to think that the only place to invest is is software. Uh, you know, there are many semiconductor companies, there are many biotech companies, uh, there are um, a number of kind of consumer hardware. There's also a number of kind of enterprise. Uh, hardware, lab automation. I mean, there's just so many different categories of investing that go on that don't get a lot of public media attention um, and coverage. And, and most of the kind of consumers of consumer media kind of miss a lot of that that's going on. So there, there's, a, there, there's a lot of innovation. I mean, most of Silicon Valley started out with, with semiconductors, right? And then personal computers and, and, and so on. And there's a massive communication and networking industry there's a massive industry in semis. There's a massive industry still in computing and and so on, um, uh, scanners, sensors, etc. So um, you know, let's not kind of um, dismiss a lot of that stuff. 
I'll say like one big trend that's gone on in Silicon Valley in the last year because of the change in interest rates is this significant um, pull in on the time horizon uh, for investments. And so when, when interest rates are 0% and you're making no um, uh, interest on your money by buying treasury bonds where you know, you're making 0% for the next 10 years, you're willing to look out to 10 years to make an investment, to deploy your capital and say, I'll get paid back in 10 years because I can't make any money in the next 10 years anyway. So I'll bet on the 10-year horizon. When interest rates jump up to 4%, well, now I can invest my money and I can make 20% back on my money in four and a half years. Um, why would I invest anything beyond that? And so a lot of investors, their time horizon and their ability to deploy capital has now shifted completely from this kind of longer range, 10 to 15 year outlook and being willing to bet on a big idea or something that has a lot of capital and a lot of investing needed for the next 10 to 15 years. And now everyone's trying to figure out who can get profitable fastest. And that's what they're investing in. And so this big shift has happened in Silicon Valley away from longer range time horizon investing to shorter range. When that happens, the companies that are more capital intensive like hardware companies or biotech companies or deep tech companies or R&D companies, suddenly they don't have a lot of funding coming their way because the stuff that you can kind of make money on much faster starts to get capital because you have several capital deployment cycles for hardware, for deep tech, for biotech. And 40% of biotechs are trading below cash now because um, historically you kind of bet on a biotech company. And then if they hit their mark, they go and raise more money. And then they hit that mark, they raise more money, and then eventually they, they get their product out the door. Same is true of hardware, same is true of deep tech, you know, all these kind of industries. And so that's really shifted in the last year. And it really hurts a lot of these industries. And the industries and the companies it hurts the most are companies that raised a Series B or Series uh, C or D, and they needed one or two more rounds of big chunks of capital before they could kind of get profitable and get their, their product out the door. And um, and now all these investors and, and they got this crazy valuation of, say, two billion dollars. And now the company is being valued at less than the cash they've raised to date, uh, which is the case for many. Um, I think I did a, a study on this. I put it out. I think two thirds of the companies that are that went public since uh, covid are trading at less than the cash they raised to date um, uh, as public companies now. And so there's this big shift back. Um, and so that's um, that's going to cause a real like shakeout in the industry in the next eighteen months, because um, uh, a lot of these companies are going to kind of be left on the uh, left to dry, um, uh, or they're going to get recapped or sold for a loss or, or what have you. So uh, yeah, that's the big change that's happening right now. Um, it's unfortunate, um, but look, uh, the the right big technology bets that that'll pay off over time. It, it'll cause a filtering mechanism. Maybe out of every hundred that used to get funded, only six get funded now. Um, so there'll still be a few, but it'll be the best. Has how has that affected you know I guess your portfolio since um, since you you're tending to you're investing in companies in that that I would imagine do have longer time horizon. Yeah, it's hard because we partner with other investors for capital, so we've certainly felt it across our portfolio. Where it would be really easy to go out and raise a bunch of money from an investor, and you get a bunch of bids and term sheets. And now it's like a total, like you got to go meet dozens of investors to get the term sheet and get the capital raised. Um, so it's really caused a big slog. And so, yeah, we see it, we hear it, we feel it. A lot of companies are making focused pivots. So they're trying to um, you know, figure out how do we spend less money? How do we give ourselves greater certainty? How do we show more progress in the near term? 
and spend less and give ourselves more runway. So all the usual pivoting that's going on in Silicon Valley right now uh, is important advice for these types of businesses. One of um, that I've heard you uh, say, one of your big, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of your big thesis is, you know, asking consumers to consume less is not going to work. So let's make every unit of production cheaper so we have less of an impact on society. What what example that I've heard heard you speak about and and certainly is top of mind for me is cultivated meat or animal um, animal cell based meat. Um, how do you think? But the idea for a consumer to kind of eating maybe tech meat it's not exactly appetizing. Like, how do you think about changing the actual consumer behavior to actually eating cultivated meat and and less reliant on on your traditional animal animal meat products? Yeah. So it's like the point I made earlier. Um, if something costs more and consumers are spending more uh, to feel good about themselves because they're doing good for the planet, then it's more of a luxury goods product. Like, you know, what's the difference between a Louis Vuitton purse and, you know, a, another kind of basic leather purse that you would buy at the store? One says Louis Vuitton, you pay 600 bucks or 800 bucks for it. The other one's 80 bucks but you feel good about yourself for buying a Louis Vuitton. There's a brand value associated with that. And brand ultimately translates into an emotion for the consumer. That's what a brand is. It's an emotion and it's a sense of identity. And so I, as a consumer, um, define my identity by, you know, the feeling of I made it, I got this Louis Vuitton purse. I can, I can hold and, and display this Louis Vuitton purse. Um, so that that's a luxury product that I pay a premium for that experience, for that brand value, for that emotion. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of what we've seen generally in sustainability, particularly in the last couple of years in food, uh, uh, which is kind of, uh, there's, there's kind of three categories. One is plant-based proteins. The other one is, um, uh, sorry, I should step back. In food, we saw it start with the organic food movement. And I'll tell you, like organic food um, as a label and, um, uh, you know, uh, let me give you an example. There's a product that uh, there's literally no GMO version uh, of, um, uh, of an input of, of oats. There's no GMO oats. So Quaker, so, so an oatmeal company puts out a box and they say, here's our oatmeal. They put another box next to it and they say non-GMO oatmeal and they charge an extra dollar for it. There's no difference between the two products. The consumer pays the dollar to feel good about the non-GMO label. And um, there's a lot of organic food categories that, that have kind of a, an equivalence. In fact, there are some organic food categories that, that um, produce food where the non-organic version doesn't use necessarily synthetic chemicals that are bad. The organic version is lower yield, more water use, you know, less uh, food per acre is being produced, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not necessarily better for the planet. It's not more sustainable, but consumers feel good because they're buying organic. I'm not saying that's universally true. I don't want to get in a debate and fight with people over organics that are listening to this. I think there's uh, certainly merits to all this stuff. But generally speaking, um, the big food companies like General Mills and Kraft and, and so on, they bought a lot of organic food brands because they could make a higher gross margin selling that product to consumers because it's a luxury good. Consumers will pay twice as much for that label to feel good about their health and the planet and so on. And the same happened in the last couple of years with plant protein and then um, uh, meat that's made uh, through precision fermentation, which means instead of using the animal to make the protein, you put the DNA that codes for that protein in a yeast cell 
and you put the yeast in a fermenter with sugar water, just like you would make wine, the yeast ferments sugar water into alcohol. In this case, the yeast ferments sugar water into protein. And so the yeast makes, so you take the water, you take the tank, you get the protein out of the tank, and now you've basically made milk or you've made eggs or you've made some other protein. And then the third category is cellular meat, where we're actually growing entire animal cells, sticking them together and, and recreating steak or, or, or chicken or whatever. All three of those categories have proven to be more expensive um, with, because we haven't yet got all the technology and engineering put together in the right way than the, 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 the traditional product. And so they look great for a while. And unfortunately, they've very much played out as fads where consumers buy the stuff to feel good for a while and ultimately revert to just buying the thing that tastes better and is cheaper. Um, the vast majority of the market. And so in order to really move the market and to get to this point of true sustainability or better, lower carbon footprint, lower water use, lower land use, which is really the goal of cellular meat and for precision fermentation, because animal agriculture is just so inefficient and it is so bad for the planet um, that we really do need to kind of see these things happen from a sustainability perspective. But we need to get the engineering right so that it is not just eggs that are more expensive and you feel good buying them, but it's eggs that are as good as eggs chemically identical to eggs and cheaper. And we have to make steak that is as good as steak. It's actually the same cells as steak. It, it, everything is chemically identical and it's cheaper. So we have to make all this stuff cheaper for it to really win the market. 95% of the world's population is going to live in Africa and South Asia by the end of the century. Those people are coming up the economic ladder, moving from $3,000 of income per year to $30,000 of income per year. They're going to want to eat more meat. They're going to want to buy the cheapest meat they can get. That's the market that we have to serve if we want to fix the sustainability problems in, in food and agriculture. And so it requires engineering and technology. And in, in the near term, a lot of this stuff is just a luxury goods category that's going to be a fad. Well, how, how then do you think about um, maybe luxury products that right now are luxury, but when you meet the entrepreneurs, they say, okay, well, at scale, it's not going to be luxury. It's going to be, um, we're, we're able to get our costs down. How do you analyze what scale kind of means to you? Yeah. So when you do this, you run what's called a techno-economic analysis or a TEA when you're building these sorts of businesses. And in the TEA, it shows how the volume of production can drive a lower price per unit of production. Um, and in that, you, there's a whole bunch of assumptions. And these models get very complicated and very deep. And then you have to pick apart the assumptions that are being made. Some of those assumptions might be that, hey, once we're bigger, we can use cheaper food stock or feedstock. Once we're bigger... The efficiency of our cells and our system will get more efficient. We'll move from 70% storage capacity to 90% storage capacity. We'll move from 50% recovery rates to 100% recovery rates. And what makes this really hard as an investor is to go through and really get a sense for which one of those things are and which ones are not going to play out. And the big challenge is that typically all of these assumptions have to line up for this thing to ultimately work and for the model to actually work and for you to actually get the cost down. And so then you kind of test a bunch of the assumptions and you feel generally good about them. And even if you're 80 or 90% good about 30 assumptions, there's still a high probability that one of them doesn't work out once you start scaling up. And then you got to do a whole nother investment cycle to fix it. And so it's, it's, it's not insurmountable. This is just an expensive long-term engineering exercise for any scale-up problem and any kind of complex engineering problem like this um, in, in, in kind of producing stuff in production. So um, that ends up kind of being the big driver here for um, for how do you get there. And then what happens is investors are like, well, one of these assumptions didn't work out. I lost a lot of money. I'm not going to invest in the space anymore. And then the next investor has that same experience. That's the, so the, the, the big concern 
many people are having is like, you know, if there's enough burnout, does the capital kind of go away? Um, when from a first principles point of view, which means if you just look at the physics of the stuff, you should be able to do all this. We are going to replace animals with, you know, a cellular meat and with uh, precision fermentation. It's it's inevitable that that's going to happen. It's just a question of when and who's going to put the money in and which which company is going to be the winner. And is any of this current generation of companies going to be winners? Are they all going to be losers? And we got to invest in the next generation of companies because then they're going to figure out all the things that that these assumptions that we didn't realize were going to be wrong got wrong. We got to go refix fix that and engineer a different solution. So, you know, it's hard to say. It's very cloudy right now and how this is all going to play out, but it will get there. What what then are the opportunities in your mind today when it comes to addressing the global food insecurity? You know, right now there's, um, call it, the, the UN estimates that about a billion people are food insecure, which means that they're living for over a year on less than 1,200 calories uh, a day. And that number, I think, got as low as five or 600 million before COVID. And then COVID really kind of, and then the Ukraine war following COVID threw a big wrench in all this because all these food supply chains got disrupted. And, you know, so if you think about it, Many countries are countries are either net importers or net exporters of food. You're either making food and selling it to the rest of the world, like the U.S. does. Uh, so we have enough to feed ourselves, and we can feed and we can sell food to other countries and make a business out of it. Or you're an importer, like Tunisia or Egypt. They don't make enough food to feed their population; they have to buy food. And so, um, what's the right solution? Well, one one of the the ways to kind of solve this is how do you build redundancy into supply chains where people can have local production. How, where they can have systems that can make food more locally for them to replace them having to import food. Because there's enough calories around the world. There's enough land. There's enough um, uh, uh, yield per acre. But we do have to make 50% more calories on Earth by the year 2050. So right now we're kind of in a generally good space in terms of total food production. But we got to ramp up production over the next 30 years. And we have to figure out how certain places don't end up getting it all while other places are left without any food and starvation and malnourishment start to occur. Um, and so th there's a lot of technology solutions we could talk about that, that I get really excited about, like, you know, these precision fermentation systems where you can have eggs and milk made in factories locally that just capture carbon from the atmosphere and use water and just print out eggs and milk. Uh, there's other systems that were demonstrated about two years ago. Um, where you could actually take the proteins that you find in plants. There's about nine of them. These are called uh, enzymes or seven of them, these enzymes that, that are found in plants. And you put them together in a bunch of tanks and then they can take carbon out of the atmosphere and they can actually make starch. And starch is 60% of human calories. And you can use that starch to make rice or wheat or potatoes or French fries. There's all sorts of stuff you can make out of that starch. And all you need is a tank that can pump... Um, carbon from the atmosphere into it, and then it needs hydrogen gas as a fuel source, and it can run and just make starch all day long. And it's about 10 times more efficient than growing corn. So um, there's a lot of these really cool technologies that allow us to build what, what I would say is a distributed or decentralized supply chain, where you move production from one factory or one animal farm in the middle that makes everything for everyone, and you have lots of smaller facilities um, that can be much more bespoke, uh, further uh, kind of on the edge of the network of, of the supply chain to make stuff for people more locally. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that I think is going to happen over the next few decades. Wanted to talk about how you think about, you know, the future of brands. There's a lot of, and there's a lot of kind of stuff happening in, especially with kind of these creator led brands like Mr. Beast and Logan, Logan Paul, and, and, and they've been kind of pretty successful at the great. How do you think, what do you think about 
your brands themselves um, and the brands that you're part of on the consumer facing. How do you think about partnering with creators and developing the brands that you want to see? Yeah. So look, I mean, I have this point of view that I think most of advertising and marketing as we know it today is going to die. Um, and I think you can see this in a couple of ways. There's a couple of kind of vectors that, 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 that send this. And, and I think the brands of the future, the CPG brands of the future are uh, content driven brands or content led brands. So, you know, go back 60, 70 years ago, Coca-Cola and Pepsi are these kind of nameless, faceless brands, right? There's no individual associated with them, right? And, and they do a bunch of ads and marketing and create emotional kind of responses in you, the consumer. You have that emotion, you buy their product when you see their product, and it tastes good and so on and so forth. Um, today, and, and so, so one vector is the vector of personalization and fragmentation, which we talked about. Everyone wants to have things their way. They want to have their own personal version. So I think the top 700 microbrews in the U.S. now outsell Budweiser and Miller. Okay. Um, and that's an incredible statistic. So, you know, I don't know. what Do you drink beer? I don't actually. I, I used to, but, but not anymore. Yeah. So, so like, I think, um, you know, if you ask beer drinkers, like, what's your beer of choice now? A, a lot, the, the majority of beer drinkers will have some kind of microbrew that they'll reference that they really like. Um, you know, and we all saw this like starting 30 years ago at Starbucks. The reason Starbucks became successful, in my opinion, is not because they were this third place, as, as Howard Schultz talked about it. You know, he also he always used to say Starbucks, there's homework in Starbucks. Um, I think Starbucks was successful because it was so personalized. Remember, it was like the first like uh, QSR you could go to or fast food place you could go to where you get it your way. It's like, I want a macchiato double skim milk caramel on it, double caramel on it. Yeah, that's my, that, and then you always have your Starbucks and it even comes out with your name written on it. Like, that's so cool. You don't get that at, at McDonald's. Um, and so Starbucks was so successful because everyone kind of started to feel a little bit more personalized and like they had their own product coming out of it. And I think that's what we see with the microbrews. Everyone kind of has this affinity, this brand affinity, this sense of connection and personalization with a brand that they really love. So that's the one vector. And we see this happening across every CPG category where there's this fragmentation where there used to be one or two brands that dominated the category. And now there's like 50 or 70 brands that make up the bulk of sales in that category. And so it's a really hard thing for big CPG companies. And sorry if I'm using the term consumer packaged goods um, companies to deal with because they're, they're all like they typically have one factory that makes the same product over and over. Now they got to figure out how to make 50 different types of mac and cheese to address the market need, you know, or, or whatever the, the, the soda or the, the, the drink might be. So that's, that's number one. The second thing is that people no longer want to have these inauthentic brands. They want to have a brand that has some personal and authentic uh, association, which is like Mr. Beast. So Mr. Beast makes these videos for six, seven years. Everyone knows him. They love him. They love his personality. They love who he is. And he's like, hey, guys, I got this chocolate bar. His chocolate bar, Feastables, outsells Hershey's in the stores that it's in, right? You, you put it in, in a store and more people are buying Feastables than they're buying a Hershey's bar. That's like, I think, a really kind of profound outcome. Kylie Jenner launches her Skims brand and it outsells like Estee Lauder. Um, you know, and, and so I think what we're seeing is like the consumer, the reason they buy it is they trust this person. They have this authentic relationship with this person. And it's not an endorsement deal. It's their product that that brand creator, that that creator is now bringing to market. So here's the two things that I think happened because of that. And number one is all of these content creators, whether you're on TikTok or Insta or uh, YouTube or, or whatever you are, 
or maybe you're a sports star or an athlete or someone that everyone has some personal connection with. I've got my favorite um, person I look up to um, or that I, I trust or I believe in. That person launches a product. You're more likely going to buy that product than the product by the nameless, faceless brand, no matter how much advertising or marketing they put in front of you. Um, and then I think that the big brand companies, um, in order to compete in this content-driven world, they're going to become content companies themselves. And so, you know, we saw um, Penn Gaming by Barstool Sports last year. I talked about this on my podcast, which was like how I thought this was such an important acquisition because Barstool Sports is a content company and Penn Gaming is a gambling, is a betting company. But Penn Gaming builds this relationship with a large number, millions of users that can be Penn Gaming customers through the content that they create. Red Bull, I think, does a good job. Red Bull's got this great YouTube channel with all these awesome videos, but it's not as well, it's not as tightly connected and integrated. Mr. Beast has a, has a chocolate thing that he puts out there. Now he says, hey, buy my chocolate. People buy the chocolate. So I think what we'll see is this really interesting integration of content with brands. Um, and as a result, the content-driven strategy starts to lead the advertising and marketing-driven strategy. And so advertising and marketing, buying paid placement, no one wants to watch an ad anymore. No one pays attention to 30-second clips or little digital display ads on a, on a website. But people watch their TikTok influencer and they'll buy a product that they tell them to buy. Um, and so I think that's a big change that's happening in the industry right now. Um, and that's probably kind of going to happen over the next couple of years. These kind of nameless, faceless brands get replaced with content-led brands. And um, and this whole mishmash of are you a content company or are you a, a CPG or services company um, is really going to kind of transform these markets. Yeah. And I think that also what we're finding, too, um, in, in kind of CPG land is also the actual founders, um, even if they don't have a following, they actually create content from, from the get-go. Um, that's actually what, what they... Uh, want to do like w one example that comes to mind is I don't know if you've heard of the company Mid Midday Squares, but um, but but the founders like, like their first hire was was actually like a a, a videographer um, because uh, the founders actually um, went they, they kind of did like a reality TV show pretty much like every day on you know Instagram TikTok and their and their stuff and they've and they've created like quite a a compelling fo uh, following now they're in um, I, I believe Walmart and um, and other um, and, and other retailers. Um, across the country. And so I think that we're also going to find, find that as well. Yeah. And if you're midday squares or, or like, where are you going to get a higher ROI, make a viral video or go buy a bunch of ad spots on Facebook, right? Like if you can make a viral video, if you can make content that people want and they share it with other people and it's like super intriguing and compelling, that's going to perform a lot better for you than buying an ad spot and forcing stuff down people's throats that they may not otherwise want um, in that moment. Yeah, I mean it's a classic kind of like Dollar Shave Club story too, with you know with with that video and then everything. Um, wrapping up here, what's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? Look, I, I really like Walter Isaacson's uh, biography of Steve Jobs. I think that was a really great book for um, just how uh, directive he was in his um, management style and as a leader. Um, I, I, I you know I think about um, I think about that book from time to time. Um, and I think it's, 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 it's worthy of a read. He had all of his faults and issues as a leader and as a manager, I think kind of almost like the, 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 the second, the, the resurrection of Steve jobs at Apple was a really um, uh, kind of powerful uh, story because of how much he changed as a manager and as a leader. And it was worth kind of having that well-documented by Isaacson. Um, 
so yeah, I, I really like that for, for, you know, just general, uh, purposes, personal inspiration. I look, I mean, dude, life is short. <laughs> uh, life will humble you. Um, I think having perspective on everything in life is, and realizing so much of the stuff that we treat as being so serious and, uh, uh, that is so mundane uh, is is so quickly irrelevant and so quickly fades and uh, having a sense of um, uh, uh, of selflessness is is super important uh, for for everyone's um, uh, you know mental health and and also you know connection with with where you are in the universe. Um, so I, I I always tell people my favorite book is Zen Mind Beginner's Mind, which is a great book on um, the lectures of a uh, the guy who started the SF Zen Center, and it's just a bunch of his lectures written out in this short book, and uh, you know, uh, not for everyone, um, but I, I've probably read it. A, a, I don't know how many how many times, but whenever I need it, I go back and read it again. No, I I appreciate you sharing these. Thanks so much, Dave. My final question for you is: What's one thing that you would change about the All In Pod? It's mm, a tough one. Probably less politics and politicking. Um, uh, yeah, like I, I just going back to the Zen mind, beginner's mind book, this is a good, good time to talk about this. Um, the human mind has such a tendency towards what's called, um, dualism inside and outside, left and right, up and down, you and me, us and them. And we find, and if, as you start good and evil, good and bad, as you start to kind of uh, allow your brain uh, to create that duality in everything in your life, uh, you really start to limit your potential and not see the bigger picture of things. Um, and I think so much of politics and politicking and who did what and who said what misses the broader point, which is where are we all as a group headed and where do we all as a group want to go? That's the more important set of questions we should be having and asking and tackling and talking with each other about rather than which side is right and which side is wrong and who did what that I disagree with. Um, and so I think that's one thing I, I generally wish everyone would kind of um, change their point of view a little bit on and spend a little more time kind of zooming out uh, and having a bit of a, uh, a wider uh, point of view on things and, and, and not allowing themselves to get drawn into the trap of dualism. I like that. And, and kind of not that everything is kind of so black and white or, or, or they're actually kind of absolutes um, on either side. So um, I like that. I like that a lot. Dave, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. There you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with David. I hope you all really enjoyed this one. I had a blast, honestly, chatting with him. Highly recommend following him on Twitter if you want to hear more of his views and thoughts, at Friedberg. And also, if you want to hear more of his takes, just subscribe to the All In Podcast. It's a really great show. Thanks again for listening. And again, if you if you do love listening and you do love the show, highly recommend as well subscribing to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com. You'll receive every new episode when it's launched directly to your inbox, as well as a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Until next time, thanks. Thanks.